everybody and welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. Today we're talking all about lifestyle modification for the treatment and prevention of atrial fibrillation and I'm joined by Professor Prash Sanders from the University of Adelaide. Prash has written a review paper in Heart which is called Lifestyle Modification for the Treatment of AF. The paper will be free for a couple of weeks after publication of this podcast. We have an interesting discussion all about the rationale for treating modifiable risk factors in atrial fibrillation to reduce the symptom burden that patients experience and also to improve the outcome after ablation procedures, which is something that I wasn't aware of. Prash talks about the way that this has been integrated into clinical practice in Adelaide in Australia where he works and I hope you enjoy the show. Maybe we can start by you telling us uh, what you do in Adelaide. What kind of cardiologist are you? Yeah, so look, I'm a, a cardiac electrophysiologist and I uh, run the Centre for Heart Rhythm Disorders at the University of Adelaide and Royal Adelaide Hospital. Uh, it's a, a group that is uh, based in the clinical arena, but we undertake research, translational research from cellular work, large animal work through to uh, clinical uh, outcome studies. Uh, and it's a, a large group of researchers based uh, based at that site. And you recently wrote a very nice review for Heart called Lifestyle Modifications for Treatment of Atrial Fibrillation with uh, three co-authors. Melissa Middledorp is the is the lead author and yourself is a senior author. Can you tell me a little bit, Prash, about the motivation for writing that review? Were you seeing evolution in the way that we should be treating atrial fibrillation? Yeah, so, uh, you know, our work over the last uh, 10 years or so has brought out the importance of uh, needing to treat treat lifestyle diseases uh, in trying to manage patients with atrial fibrillation. So the old concept was that we could manage rate, rhythm, and anticoagulation, and that's been the biggest focus. And what we've found is that not only is the population uh, increasing in their risk factors, but the amount of AF in the community seems to be increasing as well. Uh, and our treatments don't seem to be all that effective. We can achieve a certain level of success, but this is kind of guarded uh, because it, teams, it tends to come back, whether it's drug therapy or whether it's ablative techniques to maintain uh, normal rhythm. And when we look through the data, it's it's kind of obvious. You know, each of these risk factors that we have, and I'll go through some of these, um, damage the atrial muscle such that it predisposes people to atrial fibrillation. So although we can get rid of atrial fibrillation, if we don't go back and treat those risk factors, then that disease keeps progressing and comes back uh, at a later date. So these risk factors are now kind of well established and we put a nice figure in the uh, the, uh, paper to kind of highlight this. Um, and this uh, starts, I think, with obesity, given the uh, growing levels of this in the community. This is now going to be uh, one of the dominant risk factors for atrial fibrillation. And going hand in hand with that is uh, physical inactivity. Uh, hypertension has always been established as, uh, uh, as an important risk factor. It's very common in the community and perhaps undertreated to a degree. Um, we're recognizing sleep apnea as being important, diabetes. There's a little bit of data in terms of uh, cholesterol levels, definitely data on alcohol uh, intake and excess, and there's emerging data in in terms of smoking damaging the atria as well. 
And so there are a number of mechanisms that, through which this works, but essentially it leads to scarring of the atria uh, and the substrate for uh, predisposing to atrial fibrillation. And I suppose one of the motivations is that some of these modifiable risk factors, in fact many, uh, are also the risk factors that lead to coronary artery disease and uh, acute coronary syndromes and strokes, etc. And we've seen from those or large trials in in treatment of those risk factors that we can reduce the incidence uh, of that disease. And I guess in your article, you have a very nice table and several figures outlining some of the trials that have been done in atrial fibrillation in terms of modifying risk factors. Yeah. So, so uh, we've summarised uh, the data from our group in in, in there, and and also some some early data from other groups that are starting to uh, emerge. Uh, but essentially, our first study uh, we really did a randomised control study, uh, and and these were actually people waiting on our AF ablation waiting list uh, with highly symptomatic AF, and, and we found that when we got them to lose weight. And, and we did targeted a 10% weight loss and treated the other risk factors, we actually found a lot of them, their symptoms simply went away, uh, such that they, they didn't need an ablation in, in about 40% of cases. So this, this was quite dramatic. And then we followed that up with registry data. Um, the legacy study showed that it was a graded response. The better the risk factor control and the weight loss, the more likely someone was to maintain sinus rhythm. In fact, they're about six-fold more likely to maintain sinus rhythm. Um, the CardioFit study then looked at uh, uh, it in terms of the fitness level, and it seems that if we can improve uh, aerobic capacity, uh, we actually improve the outcomes of maintaining sinus rhythm uh, even more. And, and then a, a really important paper at the end of last year, we published the reverse AF, uh, which really looked at the fact that we can slow the progression of AF from paroxysmal to persistent AF if the risk factors are managed. But probably more importantly, we could reverse persistent AF to paroxysmal AF or no AF as a result of treating this risk factors. So, uh, I mean, it's a first insight into the fact that we may be able to actually reverse this epidemic that we're in in terms of atrial fibrillation. And I suppose it's a question of getting to the patients early, right? You really want to get there before they develop permanent fibrillation, if at all possible. I, I mean, absolutely. And and I guess there's two comments to that. One is that uh, in the era of wearables becoming more common, we're seeing patients at a lot earlier stage uh, of uh, having atrial fibrillation, and it's a big opportunity to intervene with risk factors to, to improve the outcomes. But the second is also true. You know, there are... There is a, a recently uh, two papers from the Cleveland Clinic which looked at the morbidly obese patient and they uh, looked at the bariatric surgery and they've replicated almost identical results uh, to this. Um, so it suggests that e even at an extreme stage of risk factor, we may be able to uh, improve the outcome. So uh, there, there is hope in this population and we, we need to work out how to deliver this in a standardized manner so that everyone can replicate these results. And in terms of talking a little bit more about perhaps other risk factors and the data that exists out there, you've you've mentioned weight reduction uh, as as an obvious target. Other ones you mentioned in your article are things like increasing physical activity, and you talk about thirty minutes of exercise three to four times a week. Can you talk us through some of the other ones here in terms of diabetes and sleep apnea? Yeah. Do you recommend everybody gets tested for sleep apnea, or just a certain group of patients? 
So, so look, uh, let, let's take it in a row. So hypertension is really important and it's undertreated. And so in our series, we get people to keep a diary of blood pressures. Um, we get we look at in-office blood pressures. We look at exercise-induced hypertension. This is particularly important in the athlete uh, where exercise-induced hypertension could be hidden. And we also look for left ventricular hypertrophy on imaging uh, because there's no reason why someone should have left ventricular hypertrophy unless we're missing uh, uh, hypertension. Uh, and then we treat fairly aggressively to try and eliminate evidence of end organ injury. Um, sleep apnea, it's, you know, we, our data suggests that screening by symptoms is not a useful strategy in this group of people. Um, and, and so we have tended to, if someone has new onset AF, or if we're aiming at maintaining sinus rhythm, we've been doing a formal sleep study and initiating therapy. Um, now, there is this is a changing field, and I think we'll be, uh, again, turning to some wearable technology in the near future uh, in terms of how we're going to be able to screen such large masses of people. Um, diabetes, important. There's really a nice uh, study that was uh, an observational study from the Cleveland Clinic that focused only on diabetic management. And they showed that if you got your uh, hemoglobin A1C uh, low or a 10% reduction in hemoglobin A1C over a 12-month period, your ablation outcomes were uh, much better. And so uh, I think that's crucial. The data in terms of hyperlipidemia and smoking is still emerging. We have aimed to, uh, as per the coronary artery disease guidelines, uh, looked at stopping smoking and treating cholesterols to normal levels. Uh, there's some really cool data coming out in terms of alcohol. You know, in terms of incident atrial fibrillation, it seems that a heavy drinking, more than two standard drinks a, a, a day, is definitely associated in both genders to be uh, with uh, atrial fibrillation. Um, moderate drinking is really only affecting men and not women. Uh, and then obviously binge drinking has long been associated. There was a really nice study presented at the American College of Cardiology as a late-breaking trial by uh, Peter Kissler's group where they looked at alcohol abstinence and they showed an enormous benefit in terms of reduction in burden. Uh, and so this is also an important target. Our target has been to less than three standard drinks a week. So it's pretty rigid and it's based on looking at repeat mapping studies which showed ongoing damage to the myocardium uh, when people were drinking more than that. So uh, it's, I don't think there's a benefit in treating one risk factor alone um, in this population, occasionally, if it's severe enough, you get away with just that one risk factor. But this is a disease that's a summation of multiple risk factors, and it's crucial that all of them are treated uh, at the same time. And Prash, do you have any practical advice for people wanting to set up this kind of service in their local hospital? Is this something you deliver in Adelaide and, and how do you go about doing that? So look, we, I think how it's delivered, there, there, there are probably multiple ways that this can be done. Uh, you know, you may find that you have a brilliant cardiac rehab uh, service, which is achieving these endpoints in, in all their patients, uh, in which case that's what you're going to use. Um, we have found cardiac rehab has not been standardized across numerous hospitals, and so it's variable what we uh, get. Um, we have built this in-house. It's tended to be one uh, person working with the patient with referrals out as required. And now that, that depends on what the person needs. Now we find 90% of people, it only needs the one person. We've also found 
that the way to get this to sustain itself is to give people achievable targets at each point. So you may, when they first see me in the arrhythmia clinic, uh, I do tell them, here are your risk factors, and look, you've got to lose 25 kilograms of weight. Uh, and, and and no one believes they have to lose 25 kilograms of weight, but and it does come as a shock. But when they then meet the physician in the risk factor clinic or the nurse in the risk factor clinic, um, then they break it down into bite-sized bits which are achievable. So this is um, perhaps two kilograms in the next three months. Uh, they get them to keep a diary of their food. That's anything that goes in their mouth is written down. They get them to keep a diary of their exercise, their blood pressure, and their weight. And this is reviewed in general every three months. If people aren't achieving targets, we need to review them sooner. And occasionally we've had to go to a weekly email contact with the person. In general, the greater the contact with the person, the more likely they're going to achieve these endpoints. Uh, you've got to give achievable targets, review them, and then work with the individual to work out why they're not achieving those results. And, and we simply take what they're already doing and make small changes each time, and that way it becomes sustainable. And in terms of um, outcomes, uh, your article ni- nicely shows that people can expect reduction in symptoms in terms of burden a- of atrial fibrillation as well. And one that surprised me was that it can improve the success of ablation procedures in terms of risk factor management. Is that just by reducing the fibrosis in the atria and that kind of mechanism, or is there something else going on there? Yeah, we're going to see a nice series of papers, both in the preclinical and the clinical arena coming out of our group, which really shows that fibrosis within the atria is reactive and goes away. Uh, when you treat these risk factors. And so uh, all of these abnormal substrates that we're seeing can actually be normalized uh, by managing the risk factors. Um, And so I I think this is a a crucial disease-changing kind of state that we we have an opportunity with. Well, it's a really fascinating paper, and uh, we'll make it free access for a few weeks after publication of this podcast. And as you say, I think wearables... Uh, are going to play an important part. I certainly have patients coming to see me in clinic with an Apple Watch showing runs of atrial fibrillation, and I guess you're seeing the same thing as well. Absolutely, and we're going to see more of it really, aren't we? Indeed. Uh, Well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Professor Prash Sanders, for joining us on this episode of the Heart Podcast, and uh, we'll hopefully chat to you again at some stage. Perfect. Thanks for having me. (laughs) 